following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Welcome this morning, gentlemen, and I uh, want to have us think a little bit about these two words, careless and deceived. And they come to my mind when I was uh, listening to my son-in-law recount some of his exploits as a young college guy hanging out with his buddies, and they had this great dream that they all wanted to go to New York. They're all in Los Angeles going to college. None of them had ever been to the East Coast. None of them had ever been to New York, and they thought this would be a great adventure. So, of course, being young guys in college and having very low-paying jobs, uh, they saved and saved and saved and scrimped and scrimped and scrimped until I could find a really cheap flight to get out to New York during one of their breaks. And it's one of those flights where you go to three different or four different stops, and each of the places has like a two- or three-hour layover. And they finally got all the way to New York and were exhausted, but so thrilled to be in the Big Apple for the very first time in their life, found a really cheap place to stay, and were wandering around and enjoying all the sights of the city, and uh, just had a blast. And on their last day, as they were walking around the city of New York, they they each had figured out that they had a little bit of money left, and so they are going to look for some kind of souvenir to bring back. And, and as uh, these uh, guys, college guys, are walking down the street, they saw a street vendor right there on the, the sidewalk who was calling people over, and a bunch of people were there watching and looking and listening. And this guy was selling uh, DVD players when the DVD player was very, very new. And he, he actually had it set up on the sidewalk, with a little little battery deal, and they were showing it on TV. And these guys were just amazed at what the DVD could do, and they thought, man, this is a wave of the future. And the guy, of course, spotted these fellas, and they're uh, very experienced in uh, understanding sales, realized these guys were not native New Yorkers. So he talked, started a conversation with them, and he was very complimentary and engaging with these guys, found out they were from L.A., and says, man, you guys got to get one of these DVD players or, they're just absolutely astounding, and he showed them all the features and showed them how amazing it was. And and uh, one of uh, my son-in-law's friends said, "Man, I want to get one of these." And the guy says, "Man, this is probably the best best decision you've made in your entire trip to New York." And uh, the guy says, "Okay, I'll wrap it up." And uh, man, it's, it's I'll give you a really good deal since you're all the way from California or in college. You're probably trying to save your money. And and he says, "I'll, I'll give it to you for half price. Just give me give me a hundred bucks, and this is yours." And hundred dollars—that's exactly how much I have left. He says, "Yeah, no sales tax, uh, just half of what I'm charging all these other people around here." And I, I just know you're really going to enjoy it. So he says, "Hey, let me get get one for you in a factory sealed box." So he brought out this factory sealed box, and he says, "Take it on the plane, and whatever you do, don't break the seal, or else they won't they won't let you take it." He says, "No problem." Hey, thanks so much. This is the best deal. And so they. Of course, they flew home, and the guy was holding it on the plane, and he was so excited about his great venture, and they all got back to the dormitory, and they all ran to his room. Hey, let's set this up on your portable TV, and he broke the factory seal, and out came a brick. And <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but if I were him, I would have kept that brick for the rest of my life. This is one of the great, great lessons in life, and and I, I don't know if I laughed harder then than any other time, but my son-in-law was laughing so hard, and all the guys are laughing at him. It's, it's like when you, you get to a position where someone can win your confidence. And in that process, as they win your confidence, they can deceive you. And their intention all along was to win your confidence so they could deceive you. Well, we have a, an amazing passage of Scripture that te- speaks about this very issue from the standpoint of spiritual matters. 
And as we are all gentlemen here trying to pursue the life of Jesus Christ, uh, we, we, we have some images up here that I just Googled. I Googled uh, careless, I Googled deceived, and I pumped up the image, and here's one of an ostrich with his head in the sand. His entire body and all the things that are vital parts of his body, they're all exposed. And, and he's about as, as useless here of keeping himself safe as you can possibly imagine. And then there's a reality in life, and I suppose it's easy for us as men to get jaded, but one of the things that we don't want to do is become cynical about everything, but to realize that there are dangers out there. And this is one of those pictures that came up on the word to be deceived. And of course, spiritually, we know that at the very beginning of the human race with Adam and Eve in the garden, they were deceived. And again, you can look through the whole process and how spiritual things are brought in, but then lies are mixed in with truth. And the issue is what the person who's trying to do the deceiving, what they want to try to accomplish through the whole process. But sometimes we can just be so used to life and recognizing the things that we do comfortably that we really aren't paying attention. So this is a fascinating picture about being careless. A young boy who knows his bicycle so well he can ride without hands. I can't do that yet. All the years of riding bicycle, I never could be successful riding without hands. But he was. But he forgot that maybe if you ride your bicycle against traffic, it's probably a little bit more dangerous than if you ride with it. And some people just have no moral standing. They just realize that they're going to try to fool you and take advantage of you. And and I suppose that over the years in life, we've tried to develop ourselves so we can recognize that those kind of dangers exist. And some people have, have this no shame. They figure if they can achieve their end objective, that the end justifies the means, then they will do that. And here's a fascinating picture that captured my attention on this and from the standpoint of people who weave this web of deceit in order to finally capture their objective or their individual that they want to overcome, someone that they want to fool. Now, one of the reasons why, to me, this lesson is so important is my wife has told me many, 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 many times that I'm just too trusting of people. I, I, if someone says something to me, I, I can't figure out why in the world would someone want to lie to me. So I believe people. I just have that natural tendency. I have not met a person yet that I have not liked. It takes a while for me to realize that this person is deceptive, they're selfish, they're trying to get something out of me or from me, and so it's, it's one of those great, great struggles. So as a leader, I have to try to develop this sense not of being jaded or fearful or overwhelmed with what people say, but just try to be as discerning as possible. So probably every single one of us have been fooled by someone. Every one of us probably has been betrayed by someone because we believe them, And that trust enabled them to gain favor and positions of confidence. And they use that for their own benefit and sometimes to our detriment. And every time you get betrayed, it takes a chunk out of your spirit. It just does. leaves huge scars. And the temptation to become the kind of person who's going to be jaded after that or make mistakes on our own as we react against someone who's hurt us. Uh, Those are some of the huge challenges before us. Well, this brings us to an amazing uh, chapter in Joshua chapter 9. And the scriptures uh, tell us this particular story, and it comes on the heels of a great victory at Jericho, an eventual great victory at Ai, and then they are in the process of trying to figure out, after they've come back from this great time of worship, how do they go forward and continue to overcome and conquer the land. So this is what the scripture says in Joshua 9. 
However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. Their intent was to fool. Their intent was to be deceptive from the very beginning. Not at all considering the cost that it would cause the nation of Israel or Joshua, only what they could gain for themselves as a benefit. It's the whole purpose and the intent of those who fool others. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put on worn patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. That's a lie. Make a treaty with us. That's true. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. Now some of us who are more easily overcome and fooled than other people are probably wrapped up in this sense where I can give an objection and maybe even vocalize my objection or suspicion. But then when they counter with a very reasonable sounding answer, sometimes that's as far as we will go. For some of us, like me, you have a question or a red flag and you make an inquiry at the first level and sometimes and oftentimes that's sufficient for us. We who are easily fooled are the kinds of people who take people at the word. We almost feel insulted that we have to ask a question that will go down to an inquiry level, down to the first level. But then when they react immediately with a response to us that sounds quite reasonable, we accept it and we go no further. Now, if you're that kind of person, then you're just like me, pretty vulnerable, pretty frustrated. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that when I, when I go down to, to Mexico and walk into a tourist fair, somehow they just know I'm the guy that everyone wants to come and sell me something. And, and uh, I, I remember the first time I went down there and a guy showed me some silver and he says, I'll make you a really good deal. And as soon as I hear that, I'm thinking to myself, great, great. I said, thank you very much. Of course, at that point, they know that you're a real sucker, and then they, they punch in some numbers on a calculator that looks like it's a real calculator, and they punch the, uh, the end number, and here comes the price. And he says, this is what we come up with. And they talk so fast, they got this thing all figured out. I said, well, I guess that's a good deal. And then they assure me with the hearing that doubt, I guess it's a good deal. He says, yeah, it's the best deal I've given all day. Now, that's, there's no truth to any of that, as you learn, as you give them the money, and you walk out. He says, hey... You know what I'll do before you leave? I'll make you the same deal on this other piece. Your wife will really like it. If she doesn't like it, your girlfriend will really like it. And so when he says that, I'm laughing. I'm thinking that's pretty funny. And, of course, my guard goes down. When I, whenever you laugh, whenever they make you laugh, your guard goes down. It says, well, show me what that is. And before you know it, I spent four or five times more than I wanted to there. And, uh, and it's one of those kinds of things I just have known and realized that over the years I cannot go into a place where you barter. I can't go in there by myself. I've got to bring my wife, Yvonne. She's much better at it. She, you've never, probably never met my wife, but she's not, not even five feet tall, and she's just a tiny little thing. But when she gets into a bartering situation, man, you want her on your side. And when, I, when, when we went into a situation and, and we were bartering, and, and I said, man, that sounds good, and my wife gives me an elbow in my rib. I said, no, that was not good. And it's one of those kinds of moments. And this is, this is, I mean, I feel so badly for Joshua. But I also have this sort of secret admiration for the Gibeonites. 
I, I cannot fool people. If you want me to be a salesman, man, don't ask me to be a salesman. If someone says, you know, Bruce, that's a great product, but I just can't afford it. Man, if there's any way you can drop the price, because my kids need new shoes, my kids need new glasses. I say, okay, okay, okay. Let me drop the price here. In fact, I'll, I'll remove my commission and take that off the top, and then we'll sell it to you at that price. Now, I, I, I've been in a number of sales jobs over my years and lost every company a lot of money. So that's, that's unfortunately, my kind of makeup. And, uh, the, and when, we, when I look at Joshua 9, I'm thinking to myself, God, I, I wish I had understood the wisdom of this particular passage, but I sure sympathize with Joshua all along the way. Well, there's, a, there's some amazing lessons in this passage of Scripture about preventing carelessness that leads a person to being deceived. The first one here is pursue your instincts that God gives you from past experience. So the Israelites heard the Gibeonites come in and say, well, how do we know this is true? You, you might be lying to us. You might be from a very close country. And, and they said, oh, no, look at, look at all the evidence here that shows that we've traveled a long ways. Moldy bread, worn out sandals. We look tired and exhausted. There's dust everywhere. All the things that we have here are worn out. Look at our wineskins. They were brand new when we left our country. And now they're cracked, old, and, and they've lost their elasticity. Look at our bread. It was fresh out of the oven. It was still warm when we left for your country to meet you. And now it's hard and encrusted and moldy. And as they, as they speak from a distance, as a third person looking at this, we're thinking, boy, don't fall for that, guys. Don't fall for that. But if we were there, guys like me would have been awful because I would have been feeling sorry for these guys. I'd be thinking, man, oh, man, your, your wives and kids must really miss you. You've gone on this long trip as a sacrifice for your nation. Of course we'll make a treaty with you. It's a strong sense, though, when we start to figure out that there's instinctively suspicious reason to question the words and the actions and the intent of people. Some of that is God-given. People will try to take advantage of you for their own benefit. That's hard to believe for some people like me, but it's very, very true. Third, it says here from a from the standpoint of a lesson, appearances need to be examined by your spirit, not just by your sight. Even in ministry, the whole process of trying to examine someone's resume is very, very much a low priority for us. We, we kind of get an overview of a, of a person, but we want to engage people in conversation and in multi-levels of interviews before we actually will have someone uh, be offered a position. And then uh, we, we actually have our HR department very objectively do a background check so we don't hire anybody who's hiding anything. And, and all those kinds of processes is where we go, and still people get through. When I, when I talk to young people and, and seminarians and they ask, well, what's the hardest part of being a leader in the, in the ministry? I said the hardest part of being a leader in the ministry is firing people when you have to discharge someone for some reason. And I said, one of, the, one of the amazing things about being in ministry is how easy it is to get in and how hard it is to get people out. We can't do it as easily as they do it in the world. We just have to give ourselves many, many layers of trying to help people, be understanding to people. But when, not, when they don't perform or they're dishonest, it's really, really tough. From the standpoint of what, this, what we're going to be learning here from Scripture, here's this uh, last principle here in preventing kind of, kind of carelessness. And I'm still trying to learn this over the years. Living by faith must lead the way of, in life decisions. No matter how well we trust our instincts and our eyesight, we have to still live by faith. Well, how in the world do we spot a shyster? 
And we we have a spiritual... <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why. I, I could probably go up here and be really friendly with this guy, and he'd be really friendly with me. And I'd say, man, that's a cool shirt you got there. But in 2 Corinthians 11, the Scripture teaches us that, the, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And on almost any kind of level, he's trying to fool us so that we compromise our spiritual commitments for the benefit of us thinking that we are going to make great gains in a decision that we make as we partner with someone who has only one intent, and that's to take advantage of who we are. Appearances match their claim. That's what they say, but at the same time, they always need to have a closer inspection. So it's good if we are suspicious about appearances to try to validate and verify what the claim might be. When God calls for a major task, look for those who are seeking a means of escape. So some of these situations like we have here with the Gibeonites, you've got to commend these guys because they did their homework. They knew that the God of the nation of Israel had instructed them to come into land and wipe out everybody that they found who lived there. They knew that. They had done their homework. And so they developed a scheme that would work around anything that would be assistance to them. Be driven by a responsibility to do God's will correctly and be alert to the threats to your obedience. We've been working really hard here to realize that one of the great lessons from the book of Joshua is immediate obedience is the only obedience that God knows. Not just, I'll get to it when I can, or I haven't said no yet, or eventually when things loosen up, when I, when I finally retire, then I'll get, get to this whole thing. God is very interested in immediate obedience as the only obedience that he knows. But when we've committed ourselves to an obedient action, it doesn't mean it's easy street. Satan will be there. We have an enemy who's there. We have a sin nature that's there. We have a world system that's trying to corrupt all of our values. And we'll do that by making it sound attractive and almost assuming that we're continuing to do God's will for us when it is in fact doing the very opposite. Check out the facts and let time be an asset, not a liability. And I don't know how many times I've rushed decisions. I'm thinking, here's a deal. I don't want to let it go away. And I hurry. And if I had just been waiting a little bit longer, God would have revealed something that's much more important to us. And we learned that from Achan. Achan in his sin when he took all that gold and, and fine clothing from Ai. If he just waited a few more days, God would have given him the privilege to take all that he wanted. But impatience is a part of something that does not come from God. Patience comes from God. Impatience does not. And one of the amazing lessons that we have from this passage of Scripture, too, is how in the world Joshua now leads the nation of Israel. When they get fooled, when they are overwhelmed, and the Scripture tells us there's something about leadership when people react emotionally to error. So in uh, this same passage of Scripture, about halfway through verse 18, the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, that's the name, the God, Elohim, the God who can create out nothing, of Israel. And we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them, which will let them live, so that the wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. 
Now, hidden in this particular passage of Scripture is something about what the biblical concept of an oath or a vow is. That's why Jesus said, don't, don't, don't quickly go into an area of, of making an oath or a vow. Those should be very rare. And that same principle that Jesus Christ warned us of in the New Testament is right here in the Old Testament. When we make a promise and attach to it a vow or an oath, in the scriptural use of that terminology, we are actually saying, God, before you, I make this promise to this individual, and if I violate this promise, this oath, this vow, I invite you to take my life. That's how strong a vow is. That's how strong an oath is. So every time I perform a wedding, I always meet with a bride and the groom before we do premarital counseling, and this is what I explain to them. On that day, it's not just a ceremony. It is a time when you exchange a vow with your future spouse for the rest of your life. And I want you to know that according to Scripture, when you make a vow in God's name, you are saying, should you ever renege on those vows, you are inviting God to take your life. You put your life on the line when you make a promise that's attached to this oath. So don't ever think that you can get in and get out. Don't ever think that divorce is an option. Don't ever think that when you leave this relationship, for whatever reason it might be, you've got to consider the importance of this oath. So Joshua's realizing that, and he's telling the people, okay, you guys are angry, I understand that. But remember, we made an oath in God's name. And if we break that oath that we've made in God's name, we will ourselves be in violation of something very, very precious to God. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. So that puts this particular promise on a whole different level. Joshua's not saying, hey, we made, a, we made a mistake. It was an innocent one. He's not saying that. He's saying we cannot break this oath because this is how precious God's name is when we bring him into a promise. So they continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Even when it was bad for them, the nation of Israel's leaders kept their word. So there's a couple of things that we can look at as far as principles about this passage that are very valuable. Stand up against your constituents' emotional reaction of anger whenever they feel like they've been fooled. Assess immediately the spiritual obligations you have. Look back at the promises we made. What are our obligations in the process of this kind of commitment? Rebuke where necessary. Joshua went to the Gibeonites and laid it out for them. He was not kind. They didn't need kindness. They needed confrontation. And Joshua was willing to do that. Attach a spiritual element to the solution. The apost- the uh, uh, Joshua, the leader of the nation of Israel, recognized the importance of where and the value of this whole thing became uh, very important. So one of the great lessons from this particular passage of Scripture in Joshua 9 is that the importance of us as individuals to live by faith and not by sight. Seek God's insight and guidance in all matters, including the small ones. And sometimes we lull ourselves into a position, well, this is just an easy, supplemental, supportive idea. I can make this decision without any problem. We have to do everything before the Lord. Trust Him for all of our decisions. When you have instincts about a decision, some hesitation, some frustration, 
Don't hesitate to be patient. Follow through with any of your suspicions that come up. Not to the point of where paralysis analysis is going to be our watchword. We, 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 that's never in Scripture either. But we don't want to rush into decisions, especially if there's something in our spirit that tells us this is not quite right or my confidence is not quite yet established. Watch because some of our greatest threats are very stealthy, hidden. They are not overt. But living by faith and not by sight is not an easy thing. George Mueller was well known for his ability to trust God, to live by faith and not by sight. And one day when he was getting ready to start his day, the housekeeper who was helping him run this orphanage in the United Kingdom came to him and says, Dr. Mueller, the children are all changed and dressed for school, but we have nothing to feed them. And George Mueller didn't take much time. He just looked at the housekeeper and said to her, Get all the children into the cafeteria, and we will get ready for breakfast. She, was, she thought that was a most bizarre response, but she had learned to trust in how this man led this orphanage with 300 children. So by the time George Mueller walked into the cafeteria, all the children were sitting there with well, well-behaved attitudes, good manners, and he looked at the children and smiled and said, Let's pray and thank God for our breakfast. And all the children thought this is kind of weird. There's no food, and he's going to be thanking God for the breakfast. And George Mueller prayed and thanked God for the day and all the blessings that he has shown to them. And he thanked the Lord for the breakfast they are about to eat. And he prayed and concluded in Jesus' name. And he sat down in his chair and looked at the children. But there was not hesitation. There was no fear. Almost seconds after he said amen. They say almost seconds after he said amen, there was a knock on the door, and a baker came. He was at the door with his truck, and uh, Dr. Mueller greeted him, and he said, Dr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep all last night. I just knew God was telling me to stop by here and to give you this bread that we just baked yesterday, and we have more than enough. And I don't know why or how, but God just brought me over here this morning, and they brought in all this bread, freshly baked. And Dr. Mueller thanked him, and all the children were eating away because they had already had their prayer of thanksgiving. And uh, Dr. Mueller was going to go back and start eating on his bread, and there was another knock on the door. And he went to open up the door, and there was a milkman. And the milkman's truck was right in front of the, the orphanage. And he says, Dr. Mueller, I, I hope I'm not disturbing you, but my truck broke down right here in front of the orphanage. And I, I got a repairman on his way to fix it, but I'm sure by the time it gets it fixed, the milk would have spoiled and I don't want it to go to waste, so I'm just wondering if maybe you could use the milk. And they brought in 10 of those big canisters of milk, those old-fashioned things that stand about this tall. And the children not only had bread that morning and milk as well. Now, one of the most special times in my life is when I went over to the United Kingdom and made new friends, and some of my new friends invited me over to the home to enjoy a meal before Yvonne and the kids came over it's about three weeks later. And they were, they were almost giddy when I walked into the door, and I thought, this is kind of crazy. Maybe uh, Scottish people are always giggling. And uh, they invited me into the living room and said, well, let's sit here before we enjoy our meal. And I thought, okay. And they said, well, why don't you sit over here, Bruce? And I thought, man, this is, this is kind of weird. All the furniture was matching. You know, when people have a, a very good interior decorator, everything looks proper in a room. This chair looked out of place. I mean, everything was beautiful and outstanding. And matching, and this one chair was old, and it was beat up, and it didn't match color-wise to anything. I said, well, I guess I'm the guest, so I get the worst chair in the room. 
So I sat down in the chair and they just stood there and looked at me. There's a husband and wife standing there smiling and looking at me. I thought, uh, you want me to sing? You want me to tell you a joke? Why are you guys staring at me? They said, why do you like the chair? I said, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I guess it's okay. And they smiled and said, this is George Mueller's chair. And all of a sudden, this electricity went through my body. No, just kidding. <laughs> there was nothing special about sitting in that chair from the standpoint of just a physical reaction. But everything in my spirit kept telling myself, how many, how many times George Mueller just sat in this chair and gone before his Lord and asked him for things, not for himself, but for the children that he watched over in that orphanage. And I just thank my friends. I said, what, what, what an incredible experience. I'll never forget sitting in this chair that belonged to such a great man of faith. Live by faith, not by sight. Most of us, if we were in George Mueller's position and there was no food, nothing that we could see with our physical eyes, we would panic. But for some reason, God gave that man the gift. And when it came time to live by faith, that's exactly what he would do. He would not just simply take it for granted. Gentlemen, God has given us this passage of Scripture in Joshua 9 so that we would live our lives differently, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us that we have been called by God to impact with our example, not with our eloquence, not with our ability to articulate argumentation. He's given to us people around us, whether it's family, co-workers, neighbors, strangers, brand new friends. So they could see in us something different on how we live our lives. And there's probably at least five, six, maybe a dozen people who are going to be watching our lives this next week. What will they see? Will they just see someone like everybody else who lives by sight? Or will they see someone who lives by faith? If we can impact the city of Houston by the people who watch how we live and be totally zapped by the Holy Spirit saying, This is someone who's got connection with the Almighty. Not because they're doing tricks, not because they're being flamboyant, but there's a quiet trust they have that I would love to have in my life. And maybe over time, God would give us a great privilege to invite those people to church, to invite them to a home Bible study, to invite them just to hear your story, your personal testimony. Can you imagine what the city of Houston would be like if everyone who's born again in this city would live by faith and not by sight. And what God could do to touch the lives of many people who then need to hear about his son, Jesus Christ. We've got some fun things to do for you in the, in the table talk section. So these questions can give you a chance to launch off whichever direction you want to go. Have a great time in the table talk. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.